I've mentioned before that my daytime job is at a kindergarten through eighth grade STEAM school. I work as the school's media aide, librarian without the degree or pay. Being in a school with kids from the age of 5 to 14 keeps things interesting. Students know that I'm the silly adult and have come to expect some shenanigans throughout the school year. I DJ all of the school events, play music for kids as they're being dropped off in the morning, and generally try to put a smile on people's faces whenever I can. If they want the serious, grumpy, mature version of myself, they would need to pay me more. So the other day, when one of the sixth grade teachers asked me to participate in something silly, it was a no-brainer. The sixth grade science teacher, Mrs. Henkel, is doing something very cool with the kids. They're currently learning all about pathogens. The curriculum comes from Michigan Tech's MyStar program. They're learning things that I don't remember learning in sixth grade and maybe never learned. One of their challenges is to discuss various nervous tissue repair options. They could choose stem cell injection, nerve tunnel, gelatin patch, or 3D printed cell gel. I'm not even sure what any of those are, but gelatin makes me hungry for jello. The scenario that goes along with the request from Mrs. Henkel is this. Some of the adults at school are acting strange, randomly and uncontrollably breaking out into dance. No one knows what's causing this, but the Center for Disease Control believes that it's a pathogen infecting adults. CDC officials, recognizing that sixth graders are immune to this disease, have tasked them with identifying the mystery pathogen that they've named RAD, Random Acts of Dance. So she needed me to dance, uncontrollably and randomly. That's easy. Here's audio I recorded from the experience. All right, so apparently the sixth graders here at the school I work at are studying pathogens. Their teacher, Mrs. Henkel, has told them that some adults are coming down with this weird infectious disease called RAD, Random Act of Dancing. So she has asked me to randomly dance and see what the kids take away from it. I randomly dance all the time, so I don't know if that's going to surprise them much. They'll probably just... Be like, oh, there's Mr. Ollie again. But we'll see what happens. I'm going to set the phone down in the classroom and then walk outside in the middle of the field that their classroom looks out to. Hello. Hello there. Mr. Ollie. 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 Mr. Ollie.
As you could hear, I was called sus. There were questions of what drugs I was on, if I was Michael Jackson, and then finally you hear a young lady ask if Mrs. Henkel recorded it. Thankfully, she did not. When I told Mrs. Henkel that I was doing a podcast episode on a similar topic, she handed me the 30-page packet that each of the students got. These kids are learning about infectious diseases, epidemiology, outbreaks, organ systems, nerve cells, and tissue engineering. It's incredible stuff. I'm just glad I'm not a sixth grader. A 30-page packet is about 28 pages too long. While I was discussing the challenge laid out for the students with Mrs. Henkel, I brought up the subject of this episode and was excited to know that she hadn't heard of it before. It fits right in with their science unit because RAD has actually happened before. A long, long time ago, on a continent far away. Episode 28, The Dancing Plague. Strasbourg is a city in France, located near the border with Germany in the historic region of Alsace. What is Alsace? Good question. Alsace is a cultural region and a territorial collectivity on the west bank of the Upper Rhine next to Germany and Switzerland. What does that mean? I don't really know, but it's changed nationality four times. Strasbourg has been around for well over 2,000 years. Between 362 and 1262, Strasbourg was governed by bishops. Since 1262, Strasbourg has been through some stuff. In 1262, the citizens violently rebelled against the bishop's rule in what is known as the Battle of Hofsbergen. After that, Strasbourg became a free imperial city. In 1681, it became a French city thanks to the armies of Louis XIV. In 1871, it became German again until the end of 1918 and World War I when it went back to France. After the Germans defeated France in World War II, they took it back. 1944 saw its return to its rightful owner, and the city has been French since then. Side note, the city of Strasbourg is widely considered to be one of the original centers of the printing industry. Amongst the darkest times of that stuff I mentioned the city going through, was the 1349 Strasbourg Massacre, when hundreds of Jews were publicly burnt to death, with many more being expelled from the city as part of the Black Death persecutions. 1793 brought about what is known as the Reign of Terror, or just the Terror. This was a period of the French Revolution where a series of massacres and numerous public executions took place in response to anti-clerical sentiment and accusations of treason by the Committee of Public Safety. The city has survived the 1870 Siege of Strasbourg, Nazi occupation between 1940 and 1944, along with British and American bombing raids. But perhaps its most bizarre event took place in July of 1518, when the Dancing Plague, or Dance Epidemic, took the city by storm. Now what happened in Strasbourg was certainly not the first case of dancing mania as it's also known. It wasn't even the first time it had happened in Strasbourg. Outbreaks of dancing mania may have occurred as early as the 7th century, but one of the earliest known documented incidents happened in the 1020s in Bernburg, Germany. It was there that 18 peasants suddenly began singing and dancing around a church, disrupting a Christmas Eve service. 
1237, a large group of children just up and traveled 12 miles from Erfurt to Arnstadt, jumping and dancing spastically the entire way. Coincidentally, it was very similar to the legend of the Pied Piper of Hamlin, a legend that originated at around the same time. In 1278, around 200 people began dancing on a bridge over the River Meuse. They danced so hard and for so long the bridge collapsed. Survivors of the collapse were fixed up at a nearby chapel dedicated to St. Vitus. We'll get to him in a bit. The first major outbreak of the dancing plague occurred at some point in 1373, with incidents reported in England, Germany, and the Netherlands. In June of 1374, one of the biggest outbreaks took place in Aachen, Germany, before spreading to other nearby places including Cologne and Strasbourg, as well as Italy and Luxembourg. More episodes popped up in 1375 and 1376, 1381, 1418, and 1428. These breakouts would continue to reappear all across Europe until around the 17th century when it suddenly stopped. Our story begins on July 14th of 1518 in Strasbourg. A young married woman known only as Frau Trophea, Frau meaning married woman or wife in French, left her home and began to dance on the narrow, cobbled street outside her home. There was no music playing. She simply began to dance. Her husband, Herr Trophea, Herr meaning adult male, followed behind and pleaded with her to stop. She was embarrassing him. She ignored her husband and continued dancing for hours. Neighbors and residents of Strasbourg cheered her on, clapping and shouting, until nightfall when she collapsed, still twitching, in exhaustion. It was noted that throughout her dancing, her face showed no emotion, and she didn't speak. The next morning, her body was undoubtedly tired, and her feet were noticeably swollen. But before she could eat or drink anything, she was up and dancing again. At some point in the second day, a few other women joined her. By the third day, a few more joined in. At this point, people of every standing had come from all around to watch what was taking place. Frau Trophea danced for between four and six days, and by the end of the week, at least 30 people had begun to mimic her unwillingly. Authorities in Strasbourg were understandably concerned, and during one of her collapses of exhaustion, they picked her up, threw her in the back of a wagon, and took her 30 miles away to Severn. I mentioned St. Vitus earlier. In Severn, there was a shrine to Vitus. Officials believed that it was he who had cursed her. According to legend, Vitus became a Christian when he was 12. He earned a reputation of being a bit of a miracle worker. He was brought to Emperor Valerian, who attempted to shake him of his faith. It didn't work, and Vitus fled to Rome. At this point, he was labeled a sorcerer, captured and tortured. He somehow came away from the torture unscathed and was set free during a storm that wiped out the temples. Catholic beliefs in Vitus are much less theatrical and believe him to be one of many Christians who were martyred at that time. Germany developed a great devotion to him in the mid-800s. He's considered to be one of the 14 holy helpers and is the patron of epileptics, those afflicted with St. Vitus's dance, dancers in general, and actors. He's also thought to be a protector against storms. So we now have Frau Trophea laid out in front of the shrine of St. Vitus, and the authorities cross their fingers that it heals her. Spoiler alert, it does. However, back in Strasbourg, more and more citizens became afflicted with the strange choreomania. Choreo being a prefix indicating the art of dance or movement. The city council was becoming desperate. 
Clergymen still believed it was the work of a vengeful St. Vitus, but the council decided to listen to the Guild of Physicians instead. Physicians declared the dance to be, quote, a natural disease which comes from overheated blood. In theory, this meant that anyone suffering must be bled. They decided to go a different route, though, and prescribed them a treatment of just dancing themselves free of it. The council hired carpenters to transform guild halls into temporary dance floors. They erected platforms in the markets in full view of the public. Dozens of musicians were hired to play drums, fiddles, pipes, and horns, and healthy dancers were brought in for further encouragement. The idea was to build up a grand party in order to exhaust those afflicted quicker. This grand plan backfired quickly. As onlookers watched, some bought into the supernatural side and believed that St. Vitus was punishing sinners. Therefore, anyone who felt like they'd sinned before joined in. The council ordered that all stages were to be pulled down immediately and also banned any music or dancing until the end of August. Anyone afflicted with dancing mania must dance out of sight. There was one exception. If healthy, responsible citizens wished to dance at weddings or celebrations of First Mass, they needed to be in their homes and only have stringed instruments playing. It was believed that drums and horns and tambourines could bring on more mania. Eventually, the council had those that they felt were suffering the worst tied up and brought to the shrine of St. Vitus by wagon. If it had worked for Frau Trophea, then maybe it could fix everyone. Once they arrived at the shrine, priests placed the sick underneath a wooden carving of Vitus. They placed crosses in their hands and gave the afflicted red shoes covered in holy water. Surrounded by incense and chanting, those with dancing mania seemed to be cured. Word got back to the council in Strasbourg, and more were sent to be forgiven by St. Vitus. At its peak, this supernatural Strasbourg sock hop saw as many as 400 people dancing. Some reports have as many as 15 people a day dying towards the end of it. As September rolled around, it had all but ceased. Eight years after the dancing plague rocked Strasbourg, Swiss physician Paracelsus came to the city to investigate. Paracelsus was born Theophrastus von Hohenheim. He was a well-known alchemist, theologian, and philosopher of the German Renaissance. He's widely considered to be a pioneer in several aspects of the medical revolution of the Renaissance, including toxicology. He believed that Frau Trophea's week-long dance session was merely a ploy to embarrass her husband, calling her actions distasteful towards the man. He added that upon seeing the success of the trick, other women began dancing to annoy their husbands too. While he may have been correct in assuming that the cause of the disease originated in the mind, Insinuating that a woman would dance until death just to annoy their husbands is misogynistic at best. If it was all just a ruse, then the participants were very convincing. Arms flailing, bodies convulsing, drenched in sweat, speeding up their dehydration under the hot July sun. Some had bloodied limbs, and all had glassy eyes. The dancers seemed to be locked in an unconscious state, and lacked the ability to control their actions.
It should be noted that many of these dancing plague events occurred in times of hardship. This would lend itself to the possibility of dancing mania being stress-induced. There have also been questions as to whether the dancing occurred spontaneously or as a result of an organized event, like a Renaissance-era flash mob. In the period when dance plagues were occurring frequently, some people danced until they broke their own ribs, some danced until they died, some screamed or laughed or cried for days or weeks on end. There were violent reactions to the color red, pain turned into pleasure, hallucinations and ecstasy. Sometimes it seemed contagious, and sometimes it stayed with just one person. More recently, various modern historians have suggested that dancing plagues may have been caused by mold. Ergot is a mold found in the stalks of damp rye, which, if consumed, can cause twitching, jerking, and hallucinations. The condition is known as St. Anthony's Fire. A historian and author has debunked that claim, however, noting that it also restricts blood flow to the extremities, making it difficult to dance for a few hours, let alone a few days. It's also said to affect people in different ways. Another possibility, according to John Waller, the author of 2009's A Time to Dance, A Time to Die, is that dancing plague is one of the many examples of a psychic contagion. According to the Medical Dictionary, psychic contagion is defined as communication of a nervous disorder or lesser psychological symptoms by imitation, as in mass hysteria. Mass hysteria is defined as when people manifest psychological symptoms in the absence of a physical cause of illness, and which may appear in reaction to psychological distress. Some examples of mass hysteria include France's medieval meowing nuns, which began with one nun and soon took over the entire convent. It only ceased when they were threatened with beatings. In Tanzania in 1963, a small number of girls at a local mission school got the giggles. Soon, nearly all of the students joined in, some laughing, some sobbing uncontrollably. They ended up shutting down the school. Once the children returned home, the students' families became infected, and soon entire villages were laughing and crying at all hours of the day and night. Cases lasted around a week, typically, but the whole ordeal lasted 18 months. In December of 1997, Japan aired episode 38 of the Pokemon anime show. In that episode, there's a scene where Pikachu shows off his electric attack. The scene is enhanced with a series of flashing lights. The episode was watched live by millions of viewers. Less than 40 minutes after the episode aired, over 600 children were admitted into various hospitals with symptoms of epilepsy, seizures, altered levels of consciousness, headaches, breathlessness, nausea, and vision problems. News stations picked up the story. They replayed the scene during newscasts and only managed to make more children sick. In total, right around 12,000 kids were involved, and only a handful of those actually had epileptic seizures. There was the satanic panic of the 1980s, the Salem witch trials of the 17th century, and of course, the wave of mass hysteria caused by Orson Welles' radio adaptation of the book War of the Worlds. It was broadcast in 1938. Anyone who hadn't tuned in from the beginning thought that they were listening to an actual news broadcast. People in New Jersey, where the fictitious alien attack was taking place, took to the streets in a panic. It took hours for the police to calm everyone, and the story made news around the world. In the 17th century, the events that took place in Strasbourg were still very much on people's minds. A man named Johann Schilter wrote a poem which in part reads, Many hundreds in Strasbourg began. 
to dance and hop, women and men, in the public market, in alleys and streets, day and night, and many of them ate nothing, until at last the sickness left them. This affliction was called St. Vitus's Dance. Another retelling from the 1600s states, In the year 1518 A.D., there occurred among men a remarkable and terrible disease called St. Vitus's Dance, in which men in their madness began to dance day and night until finally they fell down unconscious and succumbed to death. So what does that all mean? Was it overheated blood? A vengeful saint? Demonic possession? A plot to embarrass the menfolk? Mold? Or something else? So many questions, and so few answers, even 500 years later. Maybe Mrs. Henkel's 6th grade science class can help figure it all out. In the giant, intimidating packet of information I received, the unit is summarized like this. Students address the problem of emerging diseases and the use of tissue engineering to solve problems by learning of a fictitious outbreak within their school. As students progress through the unit, they identify the pathogen, construct explanations about how the pathogen affects organ systems and their subsystems, and design a tissue engineering strategy to repair the damage. How does a mystery pathogen make people sick? And how can we come up with a treatment plan? By the time the unit is over, they will all be smarter than me, and could even come up with a real viable answer for what caused the dance pandemic of 1518. The world is in good hands with this next generation. So thank you to teachers like Mrs. Henkel and programs like the one coming from Michigan Tech. Interesting, hopefully attention-keeping content that will inspire kids moving forward. And thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this or any of my other episodes, please leave a five-star review. It really helps. If you want to get in touch with me, visit Curator135.com or follow me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Just search Curator135. The shop is also open on the website with some great show-related merchandise that I've created. As always, be good to one another and be creative. The world needs you. One, four, three.